Barbells. I'm your host, Joy Henley, and today my returning guest is Georgie Dinkoff. This man is awesome. He knows his stuff, so Thank much you. research. He has um, Idea Labs, which he sells products on. You can also do your um, get your um, levels tested through hair and nails. And what else you got going on, Georgie? Um, which when I started to do some, uh, I mean, I've always, I've been doing the experiments with mice with through several labs. Um, and now we got to the point where we basically found out that a combination of the vitamins B1 and B3 actually completely stopped the most lethal cancer that the lab could offer in mice. It's actually a human tumor, uh, known as mental cell lymphoma. If you look oh. it up, uh, basically, you know, that's the most, that's nothing works on that thing in that, in that specific animal model, but it's a human tumor that's transplanted on mice. So some people will say, oh, it's just mice. But it's not mice. It's actually the human tumor is being put on the mice. So uh-huh. if this if this combination of just two simple vitamins has this effect on the tumor, we're hoping that, uh, you know, this is a very well-established way of translating these results into humans. Uh, clear, obviously, I cannot do human trials yet. Very expensive and much more regulatory uh, requirements. But, uh, you know, now we're trying to see if higher doses can actually, because they completely stop the tumor from growing, the mice don't die, right? Mm-hmm. But the tumor is still there. So now we're trying to see if we can get it to actually completely disappear by tweaking the, the different dosages and maybe adding aspirin. That will be the next step. Yeah. Because aspirin has established uh, this very, very extensive list of evidence as an anti-cancer preventive and treatment. Of course, you're never going to hear that from your doctor. Yeah. But it, the evidence is out there. So keep your fingers crossed. Maybe this year will be the year where we get to actually cure uh, this specific tumor in mice. Yeah. And all of the like research documents you share, you know, with your podcast with Danny and like other things like that. It's interesting because I keep hearing the reoccurring thing of aspirin and progesterone, like kind of yeah. help cure most things. Yeah, it yeah, seems yeah, like yeah. vitamin K. Yeah. yeah. That, if you can do these, these three things, because the vitamin K will protect from the somewhat, some, somewhat of a risk of bleeding from aspirin, right? Then you can really load up on the aspirin and basically vitamin K should be able to take care of any, um, untoward side effects that doctors are warning you about aspirin is going to kill you from bleeding oh that's a lie it does have a slight increase uh, slightly slightly increased risk of bleeding uh but even that that minor risk can actually be fully compensated by taking vitamin k which itself has anti-cancer effects mm-hmm. and is about to be approved by the fda for treating liver cancer An- another very deadly cancer yeah. that uh, for which there, there isn't much in terms of therapy other than transplanting a new liver and, but even that is not a solution because most people with transplanted organs, they don't survive that long. You know, it's, yeah. it's not a, it's not really a solution. Do you on your on your website? You know, I use Tokovid, I've used Estravan, like different things like that. Do you have a specific one that has the vitamin K in it? Yeah, it's called quinone. quinone. So because vitamin K is the quinone, the word is usually spelled with Q. Uh, but because vitamin K is a quinone, we sell it as a quinone, but that starts with K. Q-U-I-N-O-N-E. Okay. No, that's good to know. I'll, I'll make sure we, I put the link to the show notes in that if anyone's interested. Well, as we were talking, I wanted to get you back on because I myself took, took the liberty of being a guinea pig and I had high SHBG or high sex hormone binding globulin. Mm-hmm. I think I have it here. What was my lab? I told you it was like close to, in the 150s, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was like, well, you know, Georgie's mentioned boron before. <laughs> and I'm like, I'll be my own doctor. And I, and I tried it out. Georgie was doing 12 milligrams a day, right? Like, wow. and um, I tested it one week, two week, and three weeks. You know, it went from 150s down to like 120. Then it drastically dropped to 80. And then it's high, kind of hovered around the high 70s on that third week. Wow. Um, but I, I would love for you to break down like the effect, the effects of like, you know, because a lot of men listening and that have reached out to me on my podcast 
are like, I struggle with low testosterone. Like why, what can I do? Like, you know, and how the body correlates to the free testosterone, the SHBG, and then your testosterone number. So I, I'm yeah. just gonna throw it over to you. So the uh, born used to be all the rage in bodybuilding circles in the early 90s. If you look at some of the uh, older studies, uh, they'll talk, they're all from that, that time period. And they're saying that the bodybuilders are using it as, as an enhancer of free testosterone. Mm. So there was, uh, and they also noticed that it, you know, in the animal studies, in some, in some animals, uh, it increased bone mass density. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they, they said, oh, great, boron acts like an androgen. And androgens are known to lower SHBG. So if mm-hmm. you take like a strong androgen, like uh, dihydrotestosterone, um, or you know some other strong androgen, your SHBG, SHBG levels will decline, uh, which the bodybuilding community says, okay, but if that's the case, actually the doctors will agree too. If SHBG drops, then the free testosterone will rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a while, for a long time, I think to this day it survives, this theory survives that it's only the free steroids that are bioavailable that only they can actually exert the effects. Uh, turns out that that's not true. In fact, having high levels of free anything is actually not a very good sign of health. So mm-hmm. you want your total testosterone to be high if you're a male, mm-hmm. because the total testosterone, basically th- that number kind of demonstrates how well your gonads, in this case, your testicles are working. Mm-hmm. Um, similar, Similarly, in, the, in, in women, the gonads are the ovaries. Mm-hmm. So basically when you hit menopause, progesterone and estradiol go down to undetectable levels. Yeah. Right? Um, so basically that's a sign, a very reliable sign. The, that's the, what the doctors used to say, like, okay, you're menopausal, right? They'll mm-hmm. test you several months in a row. And if I think it's like six months out of the year, yeah. your progesterone and estradiol are really low, then you basically declare menopausal. Well, the same thing should be used as a criteria for males as well. So we should be looking at the total testosterone because that's kind of like what the, the equivalent to the ovaries, that's what really demonstrates how well your, your gonads are working. Free testosterone, you can manipulate in many different ways, mm-hmm. uh, largely by basically lowering SHBG. And there are multiple other compounds that lower SHBG. Boron is one of them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and one of the reasons uh, bodybuilders acquired interest in it initially was precisely that this effect that has been demonstrated multiple times in animals and humans that boron lowers SHBG. Um, however, boron itself later on demonstrated estrogenic effects in breast tissue. Um, and that's one reason why I kind of moved away from it. Mm-hmm. I was interested in boron circa 20, 2009, <laughs> 2010, right? Yeah. And I was reading this blog called Ergolog, which you may know about. It's a blog published by bodybuilders, and they have a lot of articles on boron as well. Mm-hmm. So I exper- experimented with boron myself. I think it has a slight, and I repeat, slight aromatase inhibiting effect, yeah. which is a good thing, yep. right? Um, but its overall long-term effects in humans are not known. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in fact, I don't think we have an enzyme in our body that requires boron. Right. So so the, the actual physiological requirements of boron in humans are unknown, potentially nil. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't have, it doesn't have effects, but the requirements, the, the physiological requirements for boron are potentially nil. Right. Uh, it, is, it is a very big requirement for plants, uh, very important in their growth. In fact, you can basically increase the growth of the plant beyond what you would normally increase it with miracle grow by adding a boron solution, mm. you know, just pouring into the roots as well. Um, so yeah, so boron can have effects uh, that, that may be sometimes beneficial, but because of the estrogenic effects that I've seen in later studies, I try to shy away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm no longer using it I'm, uh, and I no longer recommend it, but I think it's worth it as an experiment yeah. just to see how the different, the changes in your body and your hormonal levels will affect you. Yeah. So there you go. You, yeah. you did an experiment and uh, you found out something interesting. Yeah. And I would say to you what you kind of were just saying, I did also was checking my estrogen levels and my free total testosterone and the total went up, the free went up for sure. Um, okay. And But also because my testosterone went up, I aromatize straight to estrogen. So my estrogen there went you up. Go. 
Yeah. And I don't yeah. want that. <laughs> so so really, exactly. So the net effect of taking boron is is it varies, right? And, and you can get into a situation where something good will go up, but also something bad will go up as well. Um, so because of this non this ambivalent effect of boron, um, I'm not I'm not really comfortable with recommending to people. But as an experiment, like a two week experiment. I, I don't think it will do any harm to try it. Uh, I think it will be an interesting finding, especially if you're doing blood tests on a regular basis, that you can see how it changes it. But as far as lowering estrogen reliably, um, really the, the best ways are to effectively limit the, um, uh, the activity of the enzyme aromatase, which synthesizes estrogen from the precursors, such as testosterone, androstene dione, um, and also androstene diol. Um, and then if you can limit the effect of the uh, uh, enzyme aromatase, not completely, right, then basically you will be uh, lowering the levels of all of the estrogens, estrone, estradiol, estriol, and the various 16, 6, 17, uh, I'm sorry, 16, 16, 16, 18, 6 hydroxylated derivatives, uh, and you will be leaving more sort of like uh, raw material for androgens, progesterone, uh, and all the other uh, DHEA, and all the other beneficial steroids that, that, that you want. So the question is, okay, so what what can I take as an aromatase inhibitor? Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that are over-the-counter uh, and are, that are known to work relatively well, or one of them is aspirin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not very strong, but it's moderately effective. Uh, multiple studies have demonstrated that taking aspirin, even like a single baby aspirin tablet, lowers circulating estrogens by about 30% in women, which wow. is big enough. Yeah, it's big enough to actually have a, to have a significant effect on health. Um, then if you take high doses, I think this effect increases. And um, uh, I think the main effect to which aspirin, the main mechanism through which aspirin works is that um, the enzyme aromatase is activated by the prostaglandins that we synthesize from polyunsaturated fats. Mm-hmm. Aspirin blocks that pathway. So it lowers your lo- number of prostaglandins, lowers the number of leukotrienes, which are also synthesized from PUFA, and, and in other words, prevents the overactivation of aromatase. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are other compounds that are directly inhibiting aromatase independently of PUFO or anything else, um, and the ones that are, you know, that are probably the best, the best, well, the, 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 the one that's most widely available uh, and probably the most cheaply available will be vitamin E. Mm-hmm. Uh, the early 20th century, vitamin E was actually known uh, before it became famous as an antioxidant, which I think is to, uh, kind of like a nefarious plan to steer the, uh, the attention away from vi- what vitamin E really does. Vitamin E was known as the fertility vitamin, and that's what the name tocopherol, which is the the original name for vitamin E, that's what it means. It's basically uh, pro-fertility, mm-hmm. like a, you know, pregnancy supporting. Yeah. Um, and and it was known to improve fertility in both males and females. Um, and that was at the time where they still didn't they, they still didn't know about the estrogen, the receptors, the aromatase, all of these things. But later on, in the I'll say around the 1950s, there was already it's already it was already well established that vitamin E has a strong anti-estrogenic effect. Mm-hmm. And subsequent studies uh, in the 80s, early 2000s demonstrated that vitamin E uh, is really unique chemical because it not only acts as an aromatase inhibitor, um, like the drugs anastrozole, letrozole, examestane, the true aromatase inhibitors that were used for breast cancer and bodybuilders and athletes take as well, but also vitamin E is capable of binding and, and blocking the estrogen receptors, specifically the estrogen receptor alpha. So vitamin E is kind of like a two-in-one punch, a combination of uh, estrogen antagonists such as clomiphene or tamoxifene, which are very commonly used for breast cancer in women. Bodybuilders use them too. And something like an astrozole, letrozole, or examestane, which are the aromatase inhibitors. Mm-hmm. I don't know of a chemical that can do both. And uh, vitamin E is that chemical, um, and it's a naturally occurring chemical. Um, and you can basically get it uh, from a, 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 you know, a number of different vendors. 
provided it's the mixed tocopherols and there's no other additives in it, I think it's a pretty good, uh, it's a pretty good uh, uh, intervention to actually basically lower excess levels of estrogen. Uh, unlike the commercial aromatase inhibitors such as the letrozole and astrozole and uh, examistane and the others, I don't think you can really overdo vitamin E in terms of mm -hmm. lowering your estrogen too much. Uh, it has a modulating effect. I mean, like a study that I mentioned just before we started recording, mm -hmm. uh, breast cancer in mice, uh, the, the, the researchers said that about 500 milligrams daily of mixed tocopherols would be needed to lower estrogen by 60 to 70%. But those mice already had breast cancer, wow. so their estrogen was already high, much higher than normal. Okay. Um, so a 60 to 70% reduction in a very high levels of estrogen in breast cancer mice corresponds to something maybe like 40 to 50% decrease in a healthier person. And I think that's that's all you need really for actually to improve health. You don't need to run estrogen into the ground and, and make it completely zero uh, for you to be to feel healthy. I mean, estrogen does have a physiological role. It's it's a very very heavily involved in wound healing, right? So you do need that because it's it, it triggers cellular proliferation. So you do need your estrogens, but not to the level that most of us have on a daily yeah. basis. In fact, we have more. We have way more than enough. Huh. Yeah, that's so weird. I want to go back to something you said. You were talking about the like the baby aspirin. Like I'm thinking about that for myself. Mm -hmm. I would take that, right? But like you were saying, it can reduce it by thirty percent. Is that kind of like an immediate thing, like like a, an aromatase inhibitor would do, or is that over time? Like, I mean, the studies that that I, the human studies that I looked at, basically, they were they were feeding into these. I think the women they usually in order for you to get money for a study, and in order for you to get well published study. Um, Almost nobody's going to give you money for a study that's shorter than four weeks. Yeah. So you basically sort of four to eight weeks is kind of like the standard mm -hmm. for short-term study, right? Uh, and that's what usually, if you look at the animal studies, that's how long they last. Okay. Um, um, so basically, those are the studies that I've seen. You, it's usually at a minimum of four weeks. Doesn't mean that it didn't start to work right. before, but it's just minimum of four weeks in order for them to feel comfortable that this is not a flu, yeah. right? So they do their statistical analysis, but because of the daily fluctuations of estrogen, they do want a good deal of separation between the start point and the end point so they can stay with, you know, uh, reasonable certainty. It's like, is the aspirin, aspirin causing this? It's not something else. Yeah. Uh, so four, four weeks is what I've seen the minimum. I've felt immediate effects from aspirin whenever I feel really stressed and have like edema, like it gets basically get puffy yeah. face and, 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 you know, um, you know, peripheral tissues as well. Um, but it's usually a, like a slightly higher dosage, maybe like, a, a, you know, two or three tablets as a single right. dose. Uh, it's, it has a very clear anti-estrogenic effect. Wow, that's I don't crazy. Have, I didn't do blood yeah. tests at that time to prove it. <laughs> and even if I did, uh, basically it would require me doing a blood test before and after in a matter of 24 hours. Most doctors will bulk at oh, that. Oh, yeah. They don't, they don't like you to, they, don't, they, they say, and it's actually kind of true, you don't want to get pricked like twice in a, you know, um, uh, the blood test should not be taken too often because they start affecting the physiology. Uh -huh. So doctors now know that if they, if they are taking blood tests, there should be at least two weeks separation because the actual trauma that the needle causes by inserting into your tissue and punching the vein, that actually, if it's done too often, in, it increases a number of different inflammatory biomarkers, actually estrogen as well, mm -hmm. because estrogen is the reparative hormone. It goes there to actually, you know, uh, you know repair that puncture that happened in the vein. So, so I couldn't have tested it over a period of 24 hours, but there are some, you know, uh, telltale signs of estrogen, uh, of elevated estrogen, specifically the edema mm -hmm. um, and puffy nipples is another one. Um, and you can tell that aspirin is lowering estrogen because within 24 hours, uh, these symptoms are, are, you know, disappearing. Yeah, no, that's crazy. And so if people are taking aspirin that's processed through the liver, is that a concern? Um, I, so, so it's processed through the liver, but actually the liver itself, can be can benefit from really? aspirin. 
Um, yeah, actually, aspirin is one of the most protected things you can do for your mm -hmm. liver. They have the these older studies where they gave gave mice uh, various rodents, mice, rats, hamsters. They gave them alcohol, and everybody knows that alcohol is, is toxic on the liver, mm -hmm. right? So, so basically, they gave mice alcohol, and then they gave them a number of different anti-inflammatory drugs. One of which was aspirin. So, aspirin and another drug called peroxicam, mm -hmm. uh, slightly different but still non non-steroid anti-inflammatory drug, completely blocked the inflammatory effects of alcohol in the mm -hmm. liver. So, so it's not a bad thing that part of the aspirin is going to your liver. It's actually a good mm -hmm. thing. But if you're concerned about that, you can consume the aspirin with, uh, let's say, like a spoon of olive oil or just a, you know, a, a meal that has like a decent amount of fat. And then the long chain fatty acids, aspirin will basically emulse with ah. them. And then a lot of it will bypass the liver. You'll go through the lymphatic system. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, and in fact, this, this effect is now used by several pharma companies to create, uh, to create a specific version of aspirin that they're claiming it's not dangerous for your liver. It was never dangerous to your liver to start with, but it's, it, is a, it is a hot topic of bypassing the liver. So they're saying, oh, we're going to mix it with peanut oil. Oh, no. Oil. <laughs> yeah. Well, it does work well, but it carries with its own, you know, uh, side effects yeah. with it. Uh, but why peanut oil? Because it's the cheapest, yeah. you know, or canola right. oil. But it's got the longer, these longer chain fatty acids that will help the aspirin bypass the liver. So if you want to do it in a healthier way, do it with like uh, olive yeah. oil or coconut oil or moringa oil is another mm -hmm. one which recently I found out works really well. Or butter. Yeah. Uh, all of these contain a, a sufficient amount of the non-dangerous longer chain acids that basically can help aspirin avoid the Wow, liver. that's fascinating. Okay, so so we have kind of that understanding of that piece. So then, like I said, all the men telling me, oh my God, what can I do to get my testosterone up? Whether, you know, nat I don't know, naturally, not naturally, like, but then what the problem is, is the aromatize to the estrogen, right? So like, yeah. where do we, where yeah. do we go? <laughs> I don't know. So there, there's two aspects of it. First, the declining of the synthesis of testosterone. And second, there's also the increased aromatization of testosterone mm -hmm. with aging. Both of these are well known in, in endocrinology, but they revealed as a largely separate phenomenon. They're saying, Oh, if you're not synthesizing enough testosterone, this is a well-known fact. Uh, we are actually, you know, chalking it up to aging. Something about aging that basically uh, reduces your synthesis of testosterone. And for a while, they thought that maybe the gonads are being damaged. They're, you know, the cells are getting older in the testicles, so they're not producing testosterone. Yeah. But then they did a number of different tests, including biopsies, found out there's nothing wrong with the testicles uh, structurally. So there's something else going on that's preventing the cholesterol from turning into testosterone. And uh, if you look at the this whole this whole pathway from cholesterol to testosterone you immediately recognize that, that you know uh, the energetic molecule atp is a very important rate limiting cofactor for all of these reactions to create testosterone from cholesterol there's like five or six steps mm -hmm. um, so it means that in people with declining metabolic rate one of the actually primary signs slash symptoms is decline of total the, speaking of males decline of total testosterone synthesis mm -hmm. conversely you would expect that if testosterone, if cholesterol is not converted into downstream hormones as they used to be, then there will be a buildup of cholesterol, also very commonly observed mm -hmm. in, in, in aging males. Uh, basically, uh, I shouldn't say aging because now even males in their 20s are now being observed to have high cholesterol and low androgen. Wow. So it's an energetic thing. So the conversion problem of cholesterol into testosterone depends on ATP, which of course depends on your metabolic mm -hmm. rate. And also depends on uh, you know several different cofactors, most of which are basically uh, derived from the vitamin B3 niacinamide because NAD and NADH 
due to which niacinamide converts are cofactors for many of the enzymes that convert testosterone uh, cholesterol downstream into into testosterone and vitamin mm -hmm. A another cofactor which is crucial for the synthesis of the enzyme free beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1 uh, so really that's that's as simple as that if you yeah. if you increase your metabolic rate and has been found to happen in people that are taking thyroid for different reasons mm -hmm. their cholesterol immediately drops and their the levels of total testosterone increases. Mm -hmm. So so it sounds like we've resolved the issue. I say okay, so if I increase my metabolic rate, I'll synthesize more testosterone. Everything's great. I don't I don't need to do anything else. Unfortunately, the more testosterone you produce, it has to go somewhere, right? right? Uh, the body can excrete what it can, but one of the pathways for testosterone is to also get metabolized into estrogen. And this pathway going through aromatase, as I mentioned earlier, is triggered by inflammation, by the prostaglandins, by the leukotrienes, by stress, by nitric oxide, by basically all of these things that are that we're uh, encountering on a daily basis, multiple times on a daily basis. So just having a higher total testosterone by itself is not necessarily going to do you much good. You're going because it will mean usually that you're also going to get high estrogen, yeah. just like you yeah. find with taking boron. So really, the goal should be. Increase the metabolic rate, and also, if necessary, if you're starting to see increased aromatization, which it is being seen in, in uh, males of increasing age, mostly because of the accumulation of fatty acid tissue. Fatty acid tissue, uh, I'm sorry, fatty tissue uh, has a very high expression of the enzyme aromatase, and that's one of the reasons why people who are obese tend to have much higher circulating levels of estrogens, despite them synthesizing normal levels, sufficient number, sufficient amount of androgens. It's just that they aromatize them very quickly into estrogen. Yeah. So, you know, trying to lose that, that excess uh, fatty, fatty tissue is probably also a, a good idea. Already confirmed by human studies that uh, formerly obese men, uh, if they stay lean, uh, basically their levels of total testosterone rise and their levels of estrogens decline. Um, so, uh, you know, increase the metabolic mm -hmm. rate to, to increase the synthesis of testosterone, but also be cognizant of the fact that it can increase the estrogen as well. So maybe like a tablet of aspirin a day or a little bit of vitamin mm -hmm. E. And in general, trying to, to build muscle mass through like good concentric exercise, um, which would lower the amount of fatty tissue, is also a good way to keep the androgens from uh, turning into estrogen. That makes sense. Okay, so you said something about the increasing the metabolic rate. So like, for, for example, me... I have a thyroid disorder, so I take T3, uh, a little mm -hmm. bit of T4, but more T3. So if I'm taking that and it's increasing my metabolic rate, you said something like it will, it will in turn increase my testosterone, but then also increase my estrogen. So by me taking T3, am I, am I raising my estrogen by doing that? Mm, it depends. I mean, it's, it's hard to say what the net effect is, but I think it's better to have increased conversion of cholesterol by increased metabolic yeah. rate than to stay into right. the, like, okay, you're not going to convert any cholesterol and everything else will be low. The reason it, this is bad is that basically your serum estrogens may show up as low, but every cell in the body expresses the enzyme aromatase. Mm -hmm. So every cell in the body is capable of synthesizing its own estrogen, which it's known to actually happen in menopause now, even though doctors call it an estrogen deficient condition. But, you know, so your cells will be will having plenty of estrogen locally, right? Uh, on blood on blood parameters, you'll look perfect. The doctors say, oh, you know, estrogen, your estrogen is low. There's nothing to worry about. But you actually, your tissues will be full of estrogen. You don't want that. By increasing the metabolic rate, you're actually helping the cell get rid of the, this estrogen that has been built up. The, the ability of the, estrogen, of the cell to detox estrogen by converting it to estrone, which is a more oxidized version, uh, depends on the metabolic rate. In other words, your oxidative metabolism uh, is what determines how, how well we'll be able to oxidize the estradiol, which is fully reduced molecule, into the slightly more oxidized version called estrone. 
the estrone is less strong. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's weaker as an estrogen, and it's more easily excreted. So the metabolic rate actually determines to what degree you'll be able to detox the estrogens. Also, metabolic rate helps the liver, which is the primary organ, which detoxes estrogen by converting it into a glucuronidated or sulfated forms, so then you can release them with the urine. Um, so how well your liver works depends almost entirely on the metabolic rate. So by increasing the metabolic rate, you'll be doing a lot of support for your body, even though increasing the total synthesis of the steroids may actually increase uh, uh, the estrogen a little bit, but I think you'll be offset by the fact that you're also increasing the ability to, ex to process and excrete it. Uh, so I think that's a good, that's a better situation than not being able to synthesize anything. Now, again, I would monitor the estrogens, and if you're seeing that there's an increase in estrogens, then, you know, uh, you, you may, have, may have to think about taking an aromatase inhibitor or just aspirin yeah. or just a little bit of vitamin E. That should be Yeah, enough. okay, and so if men and or women, like what, because there's, so, Georgie, there's like a million estrogens out there. There's total estrogens here and there's estrogen, like all these different ones. Is there one estrogen? estrogen tests that men and or women should be pulling or looking yeah. at? Well, I'll say two because the, one of them doctor may not want to order. It's uh, There's an estrogen uh, biomarker uh, called estrone sulfate. So it's the estrone, the, it's like the oxidized version of estrone, estrogen that I mentioned, but it's the sulfated version. Okay. So it's similar uh, in, in its functionality to the DHEA sulfate, which is a very common test for adrenal function. Mm -hmm. And you, you want to have high levels of DHEA sulfate because it means the adrenals are working well. And the DHEA sulfate is kind of like the reserve for DHEA, the reservoir from which you can draw DHEA, which is the, the actual hormone that you need. So as it, as it turns out, Estrone sulfate is the long-acting, long-term storage reservoir for estrogens. Mm -hmm. Because estrone sulfate, if needed, can get converted back into estrone, and then from estrone into estradiol, estriol, and all the other estrogens that are needed. So if you're having a higher levels of estrone sulfate, that is not a good sign. Oh. Already multiple human studies demonstrated estrone sulfate is a reliable predictor of mortality from both breast and prostate cancer, which of course means that both of them are driven by estrogen. For breast cancer, really not, not controversial to say it, but for prostate cancer, medicine claims that it's driven by androgens. Mm -hmm. No, none of the androgens demonstrated any kind of a predictive ability uh, except estrone sulfate. Estrone sulfate predicted the risk of getting a prostate cancer, predicted the risk of getting the aggressive type of prostate cancer, and also predicted the it was a very good uh, indicator of mortality, future mortality from prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. So estrone sulfate, uh, the labs have it, both uh, uh, LabCorp and Quest have it, but it's not very well known by the doctors, yeah. but it's there. If you ask for it, they should be able to order it. It's just not listed uh, on most doctors' websites because it's such a uh, kind of like a uh, uh, obscure test. Yeah. Uh, it's not. They may not know about it, but the labs have it, and if the doctor asks for it, the labs will do it. If they, if they refuse to do that, then a combination of the estrone and estradiol in serum and also prolactin. Serum prolactin yeah. is a very, very good and sensitive indicator of your total body estrogenic stores. Um, study that I posted a long time ago on the forum where I post demonstrated that, that prolactin is a very good indication of both estrogen and serotonin. So if you have high prolactin, estrogen and or serotonin, usually both, are higher than normal. It's the estrogen acting on the pituitary that is the prime regulator of how much prolactin the pituitary will produce. Mm. Most of prolactin is produced there. So low estrogen means low levels of prolactin. High estrogen, invariably, high levels of prolactin. And they always go hand in hand. So mm. it, is, it is not physiologically possible to have high prolactin but low estrogen. And conversely, to have low prolactin but high estrogen. Um, so that and th that's a very common test. They don't order it for males. 
I think they do order it for females, especially around pregnancy. Yeah. Because it's involved in the production of milk, right? Uh, but, you know, it's available for males as well. So if men, if men or women ask for prolactin, estrone, or estradiol, those who in blood, they'll be like a very good surrogate in case they cannot get the estrone sulfate. Okay. And there's no reason not to do all of them. If the doctor is right, willing to do it, right. uh, ask for all of them. And, and yeah. um, I'm just curious because I, I do, ever since listening to you uh, with Danny, I've been checking my prolactin and it's decent. It's like low six or whatever. I think that's decent. Okay. That's good. But that's good. my total estrogen serum is high. So I'm like, you were saying they can't, they should go hand in hand. That doesn't make any sense. But maybe I should be testing well, the total estrogen serum then, right? Yes, exactly. And also, so are you testing the, 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 you said total or free estrogens? Which one are you testing? Which one is high? Total estrogen serum is high. Okay. So it, it could mean that the liver is overburdened and it cannot really get rid of the estrogen. Uh, it is overburdened. Uh, effectively. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm working on detoxing so, the pathways. <laughs> tower, the amino acids, taurine, glycine, like also gelatin because it contains glycine. Aspirin, caffeine is very, also very good. Vitamin K, as I mm-hmm. mentioned before we started recording, about to be approved for treating liver cancer. But it's not just the doctors tend, tend to get, you know, so, so you know, uh, focused on the specific disease. If it, in general, it means if this thing can treat liver cancer, it is probably very, very good for your liver to start with. Yeah. Not just that it's effective for cancer and nothing else, right. right? So vitamin K is very good for the liver. Saturated fat is very good for the liver. Coconut oil, butter, things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, aspirin, as we already mentioned, is very good for the liver. In general, keeping lipolysis low, yeah. which means keeping stress low, yeah. which is very hard these days, yeah. <laughs> right? Is, is going to help your liver get a break because it, the liver is, most of the time, the liver is stuck with processing two things. Fatty acids that are coming from the blood mm-hmm. or, or from the diet, right? And detoxing estrogen. Yep. So if it's doing both, especially if one is over, you know, it's kind of like taking over, yeah. then it cannot do the other. It's got a limited number of pathways that the so-called phase two detoxification mm-hmm. system, it can get overwhelmed very easily by fatty acids because the liver detoxes fatty acids and estrogen in a very similar way. So if it's using the same raw materials, glucuronic acid or sulfate, to attach to the fatty acids to allow them to be excreted, then it's not going to have the time or the capacity to do the same with estrogen. Mm-hmm. So the estrogen will build up in the serum. Uh, so lower lipolysis, you know, keep the liver happy with low inflammation. Yeah. Take some aspirin, take the, the amino acids that I mentioned, maybe vitamin K. Not all of them at the same time. I'm saying yeah. all of these yeah, are yeah, methods yeah. that can help the liver. And, and you mentioned, because I always hear you talking about gelatin or gelatin and glycine. Are they the same thing? So- uh, gel- uh, glycine is an amino acid that is part of gelatin. Okay. So gelatin is a combination of, it's collagen basically. It's a combination of very, of peptides composed mostly of glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline. There's some arginine as well, but it's basically a protein that is completely deficient in the amino acids tryptophan, which is also the only one that's carcinogenic. Mm-hmm. Uh, methionine and cysteine. Okay. So those three amino acids are inflammatory. And the ones that gelatin consists of, except for the arginine, because it's not that good, but the other ones, glycine, proline, yeah. hydroxyproline, they're very, very beneficial. They have very strong anti-inflammatory effects, even in very low doses. Okay, so if I were to take gelatin, that would help with the detoxifying the liver? No. Yep, yeah. Yep, one one tablespoon. And by the way, oh, glycine, go just like gelatin. Ta- yeah, just like taurine, glycine stimulates the, the synthesis of bile acids, mm-hmm. which basically that, that process itself stimulates the gallbladder, gallbladder and the liver 
to activate a lot of these de- these detox pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have if you have gallbladder problems, when you go to like a holistic doctor, even a, a normal doctor, they'll give you like something called uh, tauro deoxycholic acid, mm-hmm. which is very similar to taurine. In fact, it's composed of taurine and and a molecule that's get, that's synthesized from cholesterol, and that stimulates uh, basically digestion and and protects the liver from many of the um, things that are absorbed from the gut, such as endotoxin. But you can get that by taking the amino acid taurine or the amino acid glycine, which also triggers the synthesis of bile acids. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a combination of both is probably best. So a tablespoon of gelatin yeah. with, let's say, one gram or 500 milligrams of taurine is probably one of the best things you can do detox-wise for the liver. Tar- 500 milligrams of taurine, you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's the minimum yeah. that I think is effective. I, I wouldn't go more than two grams. I don't think it's needed. Uh, common. Okay, let's make it easy. A Red Bull and a tablespoon <laughs> of gelatin, and that's enough. <laughs> and you can you mix it together? Like if I were to just yeah, oh. of course, yeah. I mean, you it's it's carbonated, it. so it's, yeah. I'm gonna have that yeah, tomorrow. I'm excited. That and the <laughs> aspirin. I'm just everyone's gonna be like, "What are you yeah. having for breakfast?" Well, gelatin and aspirin. I'm excited. And, and Red Bull. And, and yeah, Red Bull. Right. Yeah, there we go. We yeah, have it. Yeah. Um, I want. Yeah, I think a can of Red Bull has about. Speaking of which, yeah. it's got a 1.2 grams of taurine per can. Okay. Which is probably about as much as you need on a daily basis. Yeah, you got it covered. Then you have. A, it's kind of like you're getting your dose right there. Just add the gelatin. Pour it in there. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure yeah. the consistency would be kind of weird, but I'll do it. I'll try it out. Or just chase it, like take the tablespoon sure. and chase it with the red. Yeah, water. yeah, yeah. Um, I know we only have a few minutes left, Georgie, and this has been so awesome. Again, have you? Is there any new, like, any uh, research, anything you want to share? Anything cool that you've seen in the last couple of days or week? Um, I mean, the some of the new things that we're working on, I think, are pretty exciting. We, sh- we should be able soon to test the uh, neurotransmitters in hair and nails. Mm-hmm. Which is very cool because uh, the, the these blood the blood tests for those neurotransmitters are not reliable. Okay. Uh, there's uh, the one that is reliable, which is whole whole blood serotonin. Mm-hmm. Most doctors don't order it. Most doctors refuse to order it because it requires very extensive and very very meticulous preparation of the sample. It has to be frozen deeply frozen. I think it's like negative twenty degrees centigrade, mm-hmm. which is very very low temperature. Most doctors' offices don't have that capability, um, and they're concerned that if they take the sam- blood sample. And if you ask them to test your whole blood serotonin, by the time the sample gets to the lab, it will be spoiled. So the, the result will be uh, you know, unreliable. So doctors don't want to do that. Yeah. But since now it looks like we should be able to test histamine, serotonin, dopamine, and their metabolic byproducts uh, in hair and nails, we should be able to give a consistent kind of picture of what's going on with your mind, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I'm hoping to be able to put to rest now the now-known false theory that uh, depression is caused by low serotonin. Mm-hmm. Parkinson is caused by low dopamine, etc., etc. Yeah. That you know, like uh, manic depression is caused by low serotonin as well. All of these are actually kind of 100, 180 degree wrong. Like right. uh, they're usually the evidence that we that we've seen is that it's the exact opposite. High serotonin causes depression. High serotonin actually causes Parkinson's disease. For a long time, they thought of the tremors. Mm-hmm. That oh yeah, have that is due to low dopamine. Turns out that it's not. And I kind of like had a the premonition that it's going to turn out is because one of the core symptoms, very well-known symptoms of high serotonin is tremors. Mm. Uh, so I said, okay, but there was no study on that. And then in the last two or three years, several studies came out and said, we've been wrong about Parkinson's disease. Mm. They, they may be a low dopamine, but it doesn't seem to be the actual pathology because they, they've been having these dopaminergic drugs on the market for decades and they don't cure Parkinson's disease. Right. So something else is going on. And now it turns out that it's the serotonin once again. Crazy. That's the cause of the tremors. 
That's what's causing the toxicity to the dopamine producing cells in the brain. So yes, dopamine may be a little bit lower in Parkinson's disease, but it's actually like a bystander. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a downstream effect of the high serotonin. And because the tests that we're doing cover a long period of time in hair and nails, we should be able to give you an idea of like, okay, how well is your brain functioning? Right. Or how well is your mood that. and mental health over the last six months? That's so cool. And when, when do you think that'll be available? I mean, we already know that we can test it. Now the question is, we're actually looking for volunteers because when we report a value, we have to give you a range. Yeah. You know, is it in range, out, below, or, or high, right? There's nothing published. It's such a new thing that we're doing. There's nothing published about the levels of serotonin or in general, the neurotransmitters in hair or nails because nobody thought that it would be so far, there would be actually useful to check for these things. Right. In fact, in general, checking for neurotransmitters, it's really not something that doctors do. Yeah. Um, you know, psychiatrists don't work with these things. They work with a checklist. So the only way, the only time serotonin and dopamine and the, the other neurotransmitters are checked in the blood is, is if there's a suspicion that you have a tumor producing one of those things. People with carcinoid syndrome, so-called, uh, usually uh, tumors in the gastrointestinal tract, they produce a lot of serotonin. Uh, people with something called pheochromocytoma, uh, it's a tumor that produces dopamine. Mm -hmm. So only when there's a suspicion of a, some kind of an endocrine tumor producing one of these things, only then they'll test your blood levels for those. So really like a very new, like a truly uh, uncharted territory. So we have to get a, a, a volunteer sample of at least 50 people to measure their neurotransmitters in the in the hair and nails and come up with like with what's a normal range. So we are already capable of measuring it, but right now we can give you a value, but it won't mean anything because you don't know if it's normal or abnormal. Right. Or not. So now we're in the process of collecting volunteers to actually build up the normal range. That's so cool. I love seeing all the stuff you do. And and again, we'll put the link to Idea Labs because you also sell, like I use Tokovit, Estraban, a couple of the things that you sell, and we'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. So this has been so fun again. I love it. And I hope to get you back on again and talk about something same. else. Yeah. So, same, same. Uh, oh, as far as the aromatase inhibitor, because I, I think I mentioned before we start recording, if anybody's taking a pharma aromatase inhibitor, yep. if it's the letrozole, uh, anastrozole, voronazole, um, or any of the other like older ones, yep. um, try to ask your doctor about something called exemestane. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a third generation steroidal aromatase inhibitor, and it's it's less likely to cause issues when you're taking it. And because it has a, ha a longer half life, you can take a very low dose, and it can basically keep you at a you know at, a, at an optimal level of estrogen for days. Right. You don't have to take it every day. With the anastrozole, it has to be taken every day. Yeah. Letrozole can be taken only twice a week, but it's got a very unpleasant uh, you know like a list of side effects. And the, uh, also the recent studies that I mentioned that anastrozole specifically and potentially letrozole may actually be estrogenic, may be able to activate yeah. the estrogen receptor. Exemestane doesn't do that. Most of the steroidal aromatase inhibitors do not do that because their derivatives of, are usually of androgens. Right. And they actually have an anti-estrogenic effect. Right? I love that. And if you are do, taking it less than once a day, then that allows you, I would think that's a lot better on your liver too, just naturally. Of course. Yeah. yeah anything you take externally has to eventually get through the liver to right. get metabolized and excreted. Yeah. Uh, very few things you can give the liver as, as, as much as you know as you want and the liver not eventually get overburned. Right. In fact, I don't know of anything except potentially pregnenolone, which does not have a so-called LD50, mm -hmm. which means the lethal dose at which 50% of the animals die. Pregnenolone is one of the few molecules where they stuffed them full of pregnenolone, mm -hmm. literally their stomachs expanded like a bowl, they still didn't die. <laughs> Almost everything else, even pure water can wow. actually kill you pretty reliably if you overdo it. Yeah. Um, so anything else, especially the aromatase inhibitors, yeah. you, you know, keep in mind that anything you're taking, 
the liver has to deal with it. So, mm-hmm. so be nice, be nice to your liver. Yeah, no, this is so good. Thanks, Georgie. I appreciate you as always, and um, I'll, I'll be in touch with you. Thanks a lot.